Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, we speak with Brian Adams. Yes, the singer and also photographer of this year's Pirelli calendar. Plus, a revamp of the Good Food Guide, and we head to Mexico too to visit an art book fair happening this weekend. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack. 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show on a special note. Featuring the iconic Pirelli calendar, for its 2022 edition, they invited a very special photographer, Canadian musician Brian Adams. The shoot features musicians ranging from Cher to Iggy Pop, and the inspiration for it was touring, being on the road. I had the pleasure to speak with Brian about the calendar and his upcoming tour as well. Brian Adams, what a pleasure talking to you. The legendary musician and now photographer as well, of course. But Brian, what an amazing uh, gig, you know, to do the Pirelli calendar. I mean, this is such an iconic calendar. It must be a privilege. How was the involvement? Did they approach you? Did you approach them? How, how did that work? I had a friend who had been working with them over the years. And one day I just sort of said, do you think I could send them an idea for... A calendar and said yeah of course you could so I presented an idea and then didn't hear much about it but I, I managed to get some contacts with people there and a few years ago when the new calendar came out I just thought I was gonna call and I called and he says oh well you know what it's very good you're calling can you come to Milan we'd like to talk to you <laughs> and that's how it happened that's amazing. And, and, and I mean, and I've seen, you know, the, the pictures. I think uh, they're very close to your heart in a way. Was the, inspiration, kind. was the inspiration kind of this life of a rock star and even touring a little bit as well, right? Well, it's the one thing that nobody could do during the whole pandemic when, you know, all, all the musicians were grounded and couldn't, you know, in some cases couldn't even leave our houses. But I mean, I thought what would be really good and quite optimistic would be to talk about, you know, being on the road. And with the concept of on the road, I presented it to Pirelli and they they loved it because of course it's their business being on the road. So that tied into to musicians, of course, made perfect sense. And to the point where they asked me to write a song to <laughs> to help launch the calendar, which I did also, which is called On the Road. And I just wanted to, to try to, to create a snapshot of perhaps what it might be like behind the stage, on the stage, traveling, in a hotel, all these sort of scenarios backstage in the dressing rooms and present that as the on-the-road concept for Pirelli. And um, that's what we did. And let's look at, uh, you know, the people you photographed. I mean, what a selection. I mean, from Cher to Iggy Pop, you have new names like Kalyu Shees as well, which is, you know, she's amazing. Did you knew many of them before, by the way, Brian? Because you were in the same industry. Well, I, I, let's see, who did I know? I mean, I'd met Jennifer Hudson before, and the rest I didn't know. And, of course, I knew of them, but I didn't know them. 
so that was that was cool. I actually I I met Rita way way back uh, when she started her career in an airport, and she came and said hello to me. So we sort of chuckled about that at the time, and that's it really. So it was it was all new acquaintances. And it's interesting, of course, the Pirelli calendar has, you know, they are changing throughout the years as well. Because, for example, oh, of course, you, it's a big change now. I mean, you big can't change. There's no more super naked supermodels. That's gone. For example, you have Iggy Pop as well. So there's man as well. So well, I got Iggy naked instead. Exactly. I mean, which is not a bad thing, right? <laughs> no, <clears throat> he looks great naked and he looked particularly great when he, we painted him silver. And my, one of my favorites, I have to say, Brian, because I'm, I'm a big fan of Cher. I saw actually her live in London two years ago. Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, she's such an icon. I mean, and, and she's still, I can see that she loves to be photographed in a way, right? She's great. And she was so easy to work with and nice. And her team were great. Everybody, it was just really easy. Could have spent way more time with her. Where was the shot, the shoot, sorry? Well, it was shot in three places. The majority of it was shot in Los Angeles because... That's where most people are. And because of COVID, we couldn't really get people to fly in. And so we shot we shot most of it in two places in L.A. One was the Palace Theater in Los Angeles, and the other was at the Chateau Marmont, which is a hotel. And I shot Sweetie in Capri uh, shortly afterwards. And we were stuck for one more person because of time. And so I did some self-portraits. That's amazing. And Brian, one question, of course, you're already a very respected photographer as well. How do you kind of mix your career as a photographer and also as a musician? Because you are actually at the moment literally on the road. You're preparing for your European tour at the moment, right? Do you yes. think, do, do you reserve, okay, this is my time to do music and this is my time of photography? Or do you actually combine both? I don't know, in your spare time during touring, which I don't believe it's, it's a lot of spare time, uh, but how do you combine both of those careers? Well, I, I tour differently to a lot of other people. I go out for two weeks a month, or I used to before the pandemic, and I've been doing that for 20 years. So I would go for two weeks, then I'd go home for two weeks, two weeks, go home for two weeks, two weeks on the tour, come home for two weeks. And that worked perfectly for me because I didn't I think there's something about being out all the time that becomes quite stressful. So by breaking it up, I have time for other things. So photography, family, chilling out, all those kind of things are happening when I'm not touring. I mean, and those things are very important as well. And um, you have could be the most important. Absolutely. And you have a new album coming out in March as well, which is super exciting. Yes, 11th of March, right? Yes, it's called So Happy It Hurts. I like the title already. Yeah, it's a very up record, and um, it was recorded sort of in between the gigs. You know what? I was going to tell you something, that during the whole pandemic, photography was the one thing that I, I could do all the time. It was, uh, it, it, I was getting more calls to do pictures than I was to, to go on tour. <laughs> so it, isn't it interesting that it sort of came around that way? But also when I had when I had my downtime, I was I was making music, and that's why I have this album coming out. And where are you based these days, Brian? Is it is not still in Canada? Is well, it? no. I mean, I've I've been in Canada a lot lately because I've been uh, looking after my mother. Um, she's ninety three now, so it's it's uh, it's what you got to do as a, as a son. 
And we were talking before how much, I mean, you have a lot of international fans as well. You know, I'm from Brazil and you said you have a lot of fans over there. But what about here in Europe? I mean, you're, you're starting in Portugal as well. I have a feeling there will be a lot of Brazilians in the audience in Portugal. I hope so. And, you know, Portugal has always been an incredible place for me because I used to live there. Oh, really? Yeah, I lived there for four years. And so I think the Portuguese think of me as sort of the forgotten son. And if I'm there, people come up to me and they start talking Portuguese to me, you know, thinking that I'm I'm a local. I mean, you're almost there. You mean, you spoke a little bit of Portuguese with me, you know, I might believe you. Falsum <laughs> pequeno. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. And Brian, one, one thing about the Pirelli, just coming back very quickly to the Pirelli calendar. I mean, it's such an iconic, but how do people get hold of a copy as well? Because yeah. it's, it's, it's an... You know, it, it, it's kind of mysterious, right? I mean, it's not really such an easy thing. You just well, go and buy it in, the, in no, your local... No, you can't. You can't. You have to hope that somebody's going to sell it on eBay. I, no, I noticed the other day, because a friend of mine was asking, he's like, I went on eBay, and I, you know, it was a thousand dollars to buy the calendar. I said, well, that's it. You know, the, it's, a, it's, it's an exclusively intercompany thing that they do. And because it's so exclusive and it's because it's so rare, I think it's become iconic because of that. That was Brian Adams who shot the Pirelli calendar 2022. His upcoming tour will start in Portugal next weekend. And now to Mexico. Jorge de la Garza is a kingpin in Mexico City's independent publishing scene. His bookshop, Casa Bosques, has built a cult following with its international roster of art books and beautiful contemporary magazines. And since 2014, he has organized Index, an art book fair that has fast become one of the most important shows of its kind in the Americas. The fair is currently taking place in the Curimansuto Art Gallery in the west of the Mexican capital. Louis Harnett O'Mara speaks with Jorge about what's going on. I think the difference with other art book fairs, uh, especially in America and Europe, is that, you know, in, in Latin America and in Mexico, it's not as well known some of sort of like the the small differences between like a, a book about literature and sort of an art catalog so there's more of an introduction that is done in comparison to other art book fairs so we as a mission we do kind of uh, want to be a project that is for the specialized audience but also for like people that just want to know more about uh, different types of publications we want to, for the wider public here in Mexico, to you know uh, have available publications from other parts of the world that they would not normally uh, have access to, and other formats that they might not be familiar with, uh, such as like uh, multiples or uh, photo books, fanzines. So, what's a multiple? A multiple is uh, usually done by an artist as a series. So they make like 50 or 100. There is a very good, it's a, it's a publishing house that no longer exists. It was called The Thing. It was actually a magazine and every issue was an object designed uh, with an artist. So there was one done with Gabriel Orozco, this uh, Mexican contemporary artist, which was a boomerang. 
And there was another one that I really liked that was like a chopping board that had a poem kind of etched or sketched into, into the wood. Interesting. So it's a magazine that's actually a limited edition work of art. What other sort of publishers are there at the fair? There's going to be a, a mix, you know, of course, being that Index is a, is a art book fair based in Mexico. So we, we really strive to represent the region, Mexico and Latin America. Uh, so there's going to be quite a few independent Mexican publishers, some from Latin America, like Chile, Argentina, but also from America and Europe. How do you choose the books, magazines and the artworks that you bring in? Well, you know, the book fair is organized with, with several colleagues. And uh, I mean, overall, there needs to be balance, balance in the sense of uh, different publishers from different regions of the world balance in terms of like uh, publications on art, others on photography, others on architecture. So, you know, it's kind of plural and diverse. But, you know, judging publishers or, or uh, books specifically, personally, I kind of am drawn to content, design, relevance. Some publishers are, are better known because of, you know, how stunning the printing is others more because of what the the content of their publications is it's very relevant and ur urgent and you know others are able to combine all three or just play a bit more with the format of the book of what actually a book is so i think a lot of younger designers and editors publishers are kind of a uh, looking at, at printed media in a different way and coming up with really interesting uh, new formats or publications in general. What trends do you see in the art book publishing industry in Latin America and more generally? I mean, first of all, I would say uh, with magazines, there does seem to be a shift to printing less frequently, but, you know, knowing that the consumer wants something that's kind of a better quality in terms of not only content, but materials. It's something that feels more like a, an object, an expensive ob object. So I'm seeing that in some of the glossy magazines. There's also, uh, you know, just because of things like climate change and uh, the Anthropocene and, you know, certain like even COVID blatant kind of problems that we have as a society that has kind of like uh, some publishers are really focusing on, on very urgent matters or more political or social content and also looking into communities. Uh, you know, here in Mexico, you can talk about the indigenous uh, communities in the country of how they have been able to live for centuries in balance with the earth or however you want to describe that. Uh, so that sort of knowledge is trying to be rescued and, and uh, all sort of disseminated or spread more, more widely uh, within Mexico and other parts of the world. Mm. Tell me about your program of speakers. Yeah, the main speaker uh, this year is going to be Ochi Curiel. She's from the Dominican Republic. And, you know, she is basically a queer decolonial feminist. And uh, her uh, conference is going to be about that. We also have some panels and workshops and, you know, also um, activities for kids. The whole program kind of revolves around potent coalitions. You know, there's this whole thing of how 
things have accelerated and capitalism has accelerated and maybe the pandemic has accelerated it even further. And uh, this causes fragmentations of individuals, of collectives, of communities. So the program tries to identify uh, communities, coalitions, current, you know, currently working and sort of trying to learn from them and what they do. You have a lot of discussion concerning politics at your show. I think it's an act of resistance, like, especially nowadays that, uh, I mean, it's kind of a gamble because, you know, publishers, uh, it's expensive and you don't have an immediate return. It's more of a labor of love. What do you think is political about innovation in publishing and using the printed word? So the book form, I think, has more freedom. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, these events like art fairs and publications themselves, you could see them as, you know, excuses to bring people together and have certain discussions and, uh, you know, share ideas. At the end of the day, it's, it's kind of like an object that brings people together. And that's valuable enough in itself. Uh, you know, that experience of sharing as well as you on your own having a direct relationship with the content of the publication. And finally on the show, we welcome a Monaco 24 regular, Adam Hyman, founder of Code Hospitality. Adam also acquired the Good Food Guide. Here he tells Tom Edwards about his plans for it. Code as a business has always been industry-facing, so B2B, so to speak. So our kind of um, subscriptions and memberships are, are purely for people who work in hospitality. And, you know, we've always looked, you know, how we grow a business, looking at the consumer side of things. And then in, uh, I think it was May last year in 2021, uh, Waitrose, that's part of John Lewis, the um, supermarket here in the UK, they'd owned the Good Food Guide for, I think, about seven or eight years. And they just announced that actually they were ceasing publication of it. And I was introduced to uh, someone at the Good Food Guide because I'd heard they may be looking to do something with it. You know, fast forward a couple of months after the sales process and, and we were the chosen buyer. And yeah, as you say, it's, it, it's got a huge heritage. It's actually been, I think it was its 70th anniversary last year. So it was started in 1951. And it was actually quite ahead of its time when it started. So it was started by a chap called Raymond Postgate. And his, his aim was basically to make food better in Britain post-war. And, you know, food has uh, historically never been great in the UK. Great is probably that's an unfair, an, an, an unfair word to use, but, you know, it's never been amazing dining out. And I think over the past probably 10 to 15 years, we, we've, we've really changed that and we have some of the best restaurants in the world now. And their, their kind of remit since 1951 has been giving, you know, independent reviews of where to go and eat up and down the country. And so, yeah, we, we um, bought the Good Food Guide back in kind of October last year. And even though we're going to keep its integrity and heritage, so all the meals that our inspectors up and down the country go and um, have, we pay for. So, you know, it, it's very transparent like that. And you can't get in the guide. You, know, you can't pay to be in it. It's very much we're choosing who goes in it. But, you know, 70 years on, it, it, it really needs to be kind of transformed. Mm. So sadly, even though I'm a big believer in print, I think the actual... The way people consume a guide now, it definitely needs to be more digital. And I think, you know, when you started to look at, at, at how the guide was put together, say we were putting together a guide for 2023, all of the restaurants would have to be inspected and we'd have to do all the editorial by sort of May 2022 for it to go to print and then obviously be um, distributed, etc. 
And that didn't quite sit right with me because you're almost telling people where to go and eat in 2023, but it's almost kind of nine months out of date. And obviously, you know, the hospitality world at the moment's moving very quickly and sadly places are closing and chefs change, etc., etc. So the actual guide now we're going to put online because you know, for obvious reasons we can update it very quickly. And I think, you know, sadly, that is now how people consume guides. And you know, the first thing you do if you're visiting an area is you'll Google, you know, top five restaurants in this town or city. So it's a kind of no-brainer to do that, and we're going to introduce a subscription element because I'm a big believer in not giving out content for free. So that's a big part of what we're going to do this year. However, I still want to definitely keep a print element to the Good Food Guide. So what we're going to look at doing is making more of a kind of coffee table style book and actually do more of a year in review. So look at what's happened over the past year. And I want to do lots of nice essays in there written by different people, you know, chefs, restaurateurs, food writers, and make it more of that kind of A, so, you know, it's very pretty and nice to look at and you put it on your coffee table and kind of people go, oh, what's that? But also, you know, one of those books... I guess a bit like what you guys do with all your books, where you kind of, you know, every now and then you'll open it up and you'll read a chapter or you'll flick through it and just, you know, so it's not very much, it's not designed to be read from front to back in one go. You can kind of delve into it every now and then. And, you know, we're we're still very big believers that you still need an authoritative voice in Mm. restaurant reviews and criticising. And, you know, you can't ignore the role that social media plays now and, you know, you can see that, especially the kind of younger generations, they they choose where to eat off the back of a nice picture of a plate of food that's on their Instagram and where that's got the most amount of likes. But I think, you know, especially the way national newspapers are going at the moment, and sadly, you know, a, a lot of their lifestyle journalists and, um, you know, kind of what people are commissioned to do are being cut down a lot. But, but we still believe there's a really important place for a restaurant critic. You know, it's the same as a theatre critic you need someone to be holding standards up and ideally or hopefully they 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 know what they're talking about and are giving an opinion well yeah and i wanted to ask you specifically about restaurant and food criticism because exactly as you said and you know we understand the power of these uh, social media platforms in particular the accessibility the sort of democratizing power of digital is incredible and it's unprecedented we understand that but yeah to that point about the voice of authority it doesn't have to be in print on the page of a broadsheet newspaper, but there is something about that that imbues it with a greater degree of, yeah, I don't know, is it trust? Is it authenticity? Is it, is it a clarity that comes from that? And, and it's interesting to hear how you're planning to, to, to navigate that. But do you think it's short-sighted of maybe, yeah, newspapers or publishers online or off to dispense with critics and say well look you know the public makes up their their own mind i mean right as a sort of a, an editor of a traditional mindset you know i like the idea of somebody wielding a red pen it sorts out it shuts out the white noise it means i can i feel i'm making proper decisions based on information that's come from a source that i can really trust are we a bit quick to abandon or have some of these players been a bit quick to abandon those things do you think they risk kind of cutting off their nose to spite their face because they need those things don't they to retain their authority in this area yeah i mean look I, I i completely agree with that i think it's it's that fine balance isn't it that we know that obviously an editor of a newspaper or a magazine they also want that columnist or that that critic you know it, it helps sell the paper or the magazine and it needs to be funny it needs to be well written and, and i and i totally get that balance of of you know how to sell a a newspaper or a magazine but yeah i think for me it more comes down to the fact that we can all easily take out our phone or go onto our laptops and type in 
where to eat in London or where to eat in Sydney or Bangkok or wherever. And you're kind of inundated with, you know, thousands, if not millions of websites and suggestions. And I think for me, it's actually, I think especially, you know, people who are very kind of time poor, busy, if you can be authoritative and, and people kind of trust you and, and, and believe in what you're writing about and saying, I actually don't need a thousand restaurants in London to go to. I need to be told those five of the moment, whether it's, you know, these restaurants are the ones to go to in the summer at the moment. And I think, you know, we've probably all been there where we've got friends scattered around the world going, where should I go and eat when I'm visiting this place for the weekend? And, you know, you don't need 30 restaurants. You need, right, this is your place to go for a nice casual lunch. This is your slightly smarter restaurant for dinner. This is your place to, you know, grab a coffee and a pastry in the morning. And I almost think less is more. And if you can be the trusted source to go there, I think you can have quite a powerful product because... You know, as I said, you don't need these kind of endless lists of where to go and eat. Or that, that's not what I'm looking for. And I don't think that's what a, a lot of people are looking for. They just want to be told these are the five places to go to at the moment. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. It's got to be Brian Adams again with When You're Gone, featuring Melanie C. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.